really comes down to this concept of stewardship, both client-facing and, you know, much more importantly, with regard to the internal management of our firm. Stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Our team members have entrusted the firm to bring them opportunities for personal and professional development, to bring financial stability to them and their families, to listen, to support, to bring a sense of empowerment and belonging. Internal stewardship is the linchpin that makes it all possible, that makes the client stewardship possible. And if, if we invest in one another, we can consistently deliver excellence. And as leaders, we really have to work hard to get that ingrained into the culture, both through words and deeds. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the founder of Silicon Legal Strategy, a premier boutique law firm providing targeted, bottom-line-oriented advice to technology startups, innovative entrepreneurs, and seasoned investors. Starting in 2007 with just himself and one paralegal, the firm has now grown significantly with offices spanning San Francisco, LA, and Denver. This episode will be an interesting look at how a law firm is designed from the ground up to empower and support attorneys to grow a practice in a meaningful way. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Andre Garakarnian. Andre, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, really excited. I'm very excited to have you here. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but at the beginning of every show, I always ask for a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of slice of life. So if you can tell me what your favorite moment is so far this morning. Favorite moment of the morning? I'd have to say it's just the morning meditation that I do. It, it is the first thing I do when I get up in the morning, and it provides just a level of clarity and calm before the storm, and really try to stick to that every single day. It just starts it off on the right foot, and I can feel more engaged. I can feel more present and less reactive, and I'm not waking up to a jackhammer of emails, but I'm really you know focused on myself and self-care in my day. I love that. How long have you been doing this meditation practice? I would say a little over a year and a half. And what spurred meditation? Really just trying to get a little bit more in touch with myself and my emotions, my you know response to stress, controlling anger, really just trying to get a little bit more insight into how I'm feeling so that I can be a little bit more of an observer when things happen and less of a reactor. Uh, yeah. So try, trying to bring a sense of calm. And it's also just a recentering. It focuses the morning. A lot of times I'll do it before I leave the office and come home because I want to switch my brain and be really present with my family. Sometimes before work things, before I know I'm going to have a difficult call or before some project that I've been dreading that I know I need to get down and grind on for two hours and I can't seem to motivate myself. There's something about sort of cleaning the slate that it does. And I've become like a pretty big adherent. You know, I never really thought about that. It's common to hear people meditate in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes even at night before they go to bed. Uh -huh. But I like this concept of meditation as a way to ease into a transition. Mm -hmm. 
that's really a useful piece of advice that I'm going to start doing as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. There's something too about, I think, procrastination, for instance. I don't think procrastination is necessarily a function of being lazy, though sometimes I'm lazy too, but it's, you're just not there yet. Like you haven't figured out the right path or you're not in the right mindset. And I think so much of what we do is just a function of being in the right mindset at the right time. And again, it's just something that clears it and you start over and you can be more intentional. Yeah. We could do a podcast just on that. Just on this? I know. Well, if this conversation is any indication of what's to come, I think that this is going to be a fantastic conversation. And on that note, I'd love to hear how it all started for you. If you can briefly give us your lawyer origin story. Sure. (laughs) Never a straight line. So I went to law school to be an antitrust lawyer. I had spent a summer working for these economists that provided like the testimony and trial exhibits in the Microsoft antitrust case. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. Went to law school, sucked at law school, sucked at just the sort of legal writing and moot court argument and all that. I was horrible and fell into transactional law went to Chicago. I actually liked transaction law, initially doing a lot of Fortune 100, M&A, capital markets, Mayor Brown, moved over into doing some more private equity, venture capital work, like that, and thought there was something. Then around 2004-ish, my best friend from law school got married. He was working in LA. I met a woman at this wedding, and she was living in San Francisco at the time. I lied to her and told her that I was moving to San Francisco. She's my wife and the mother of my son. So it turned out okay. It turned out okay. Totally, you know, followed her, came out to work with Oryx Emerging Companies Group, working with nothing but startups and VCs, really fell in love with it. You're living vicariously through these kinds of clients, you know? So I'm thinking, do I want to start a company? Do I want to join an existing startup? Do I want to go in-house? And I met somebody who was a former colleague of my Oryx colleagues. And the bulk of that office at the time, that office in Menlo Park, they came from Venture Law Group, which was this upstart in Web 1.0 and sort of like a cowboy style practical lawyering. And I met this guy who was younger than I was, but started his own shop. And I was like, wow, that is interesting to me because you can't leave Morrison Forrester and go to Wells Fargo and be like, hey, dump mofo, come work with me. Doesn't make any sense. But you can be the main lawyer for a small startup or a small VC fund as a solo. So completely captivated by that, was like on a 14-month journey, preparing for it, got the wife on board. I remember going to the office max on 4th and Geary and like, I mean, she was such a trooper, like totally bit the bullet, took out our dining room and put in like the ugliest office max furniture with hutches on it and went for it. October 1st of 07, initially just myself and a part-time paralegal, started to piece together contractors. July of 09, hired people's full-time employees, had an office, and now we're 52. We just opened a fourth location in Austin last week. So SFLA, Denver, and Austin. And it's been uh, a really awesome run. I love this story on so many levels. One, I love that you followed your heart, literally, uh, (laughs) and, and got married. What did your wife say when you told her, listen, I totally lied to you when I said that I was moving to San Francisco? What did she say? I mean, and she didn't care, you know, yeah. I, I think both of us were madly in love. I would have come out here and done trust in the States, but I would have done anything. <laughs> like it wouldn't matter. Oh, that's amazing. It was also just a strange contrast to, I think, 
up to that point in my life, so much of what I did was like weighing pros and cons, overly methodical, lawyerly approach to everything. And this was like rash. You know, I, I literally lied to her basically just to get with her at the wedding. And then barely knowing her, I'm like calling headhunters, get me out to San Francisco. And then two months later, I'm proposing to oh her. Oh my God. And so completely like irrational sort of gut feel decision making. That was a turning point. I'd say it's impacted the way that I approach problem solving and challenges. It was an entire like 180 degree shift in mindset. That's fascinating. And then I love that you can fast forward and both of you are, you know, shopping for Office Max furniture and sitting together, putting your heads together and starting a business together. I think that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. What a love story. Well, she only worked with me for a little bit. Like she'd tell you it was good to not still be working with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 but it, it was it was amazing to have that kind of support system. You mentioned also that you saw some lawyers that had this cowboy style type lawyering. What's a cowboy style lawyering mean to you? Well, I'd say that traditional sort of big law, white shoe form lawyers, it's a different feel that startup lawyers have. We're a unique breed. I think those of us who are in this practice in particular, those of us who succeed in this practice have an elevated risk tolerance, call it a danger calculus, that is so far removed from the typical risk-averse attorney perspective and very far removed from law school training. And I think that can lead a lot of, quote-unquote, traditional lawyers to thinking that we're just a bunch of cowboys, reckless in our counseling, sort of shoot from the hip. But that the reality is that the type of clients that we serve have already made some very bold decisions with respect to risk. And we actually do them a disservice. If we can't push the client forward in a practical, empowering way that enables them to proceed boldly, we aren't really providing valuable counsel. If you come to our office, it's just not a lawyer's office. It's kind of whimsical. But I, I have this picture hanging on my office door that's a scene from the movie Training Day. And it's where Denzel tells the recruit Ethan Hawke's character, unlearn that bullshit they teach you in the academy. That shit will get you killed out here. I made it into a meme that says, unlearn that bullshit they teach you in law school. That shit will get you killed out here. That's our mentality. It's that you've got to provide advice that is realistic and practical and geared toward people who don't have the tolerance for a long-winded memo. What I hear you saying also is that in order to properly advise clients who also are willing to take risks, have done a lot of the risk assessments, are out there really trying to make a difference, you yourself as an attorney have to be able to relate to that, have that same mindset. Absolutely. You really have to have this level of engaged empathy and understanding about what they're trying to do from a, from a big picture perspective and not sweating the small stuff. Of course, you're you know, crossing the I's and dotting the T's and, and, you know, you're buttoned up, but that can be done on steroids and really get in the way of deals closing, get in the way of progress just because of a few possible risks here and there. And they're ready for those risks. They're leaving cushy jobs, getting paid a lot of money in a very safe way every year to take these kinds of challenges on. And so we got to respect that. Yes. And I like this meme of unlearning the bullshit that you've learned. How do you unlearn that kind of stuff? In a weird way, I think it's kind of like the inquisition, confrontation, like really being challenged 
with respect to those conceptions. So coming from traditional big Chicago firm and then working with the folks at Oric, I came with a framework and a mindset and a tool chest that was the traditional approach. And someone sort of like like coming to Jesus with you, like, okay, if they don't get this deal signed, the company's going to die. Right. So do we care about this onerous indemnification provision that may bite us in a corner case or is the real risk not getting the deal done and orienting you know, your thinking, challenging it? Explain this to me in a way the 16 year old would understand it. Right. Being like, hey, we're sending an email now, not even just in the advice, but even in the delivery. We're sending an email now to this client who is going to read the email on their phone. They're not like you with a laptop in front of you two screens open, and engaging. How do we quickly elicit a response to move the transaction forward in a very sort of customer-friendly, UX-friendly way? So this sort of like, get down to brass tacks. Like, let's really talk about what matters and not some theoretical musings. I think it's really powerful what you said about it's between fighting for the next few months on a clause and a contract or this actual company just dying. And I think making the client real, not mm-hmm. just this entity on paper with robots working for it, but yeah, real yeah. people investing time, money, their livelihood that actually needs your help to move things forward. It really is that click that sometimes people need to be like, this is real. Mm-hmm. I yeah. like that a lot. It's really helpful for me anyway in thinking about practical ways in which to unlearn a lot mm-hmm. of these mm-hmm. things. At the end of the day, you got to be able to communicate things in a way that people understand. Oh, yeah. It is such a skill that I think people don't always realize is so important. I think in particular with this kind of practice, there's a tired joke. If anyone from my firm is listening to this podcast, the eye roll is like audible. You can hear the eye rolls happening. We always say that we're not helping clients finance a soccer stadium in Brazil. What we're doing is not so complex. You know, It's mostly small business law, small deals. Very few of our transactions show up on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. But in terms of the emotional impact and the sense of urgency and anxiety, it's off the charts because these clients are doing bet the company kinds of things every day. And so it's like, you've got to be able to deliver this advice in a way that is empowering. Yes. That really encourages them to take the next action. Very infrequently, will you ever hear a lawyer from Silicon Legal say, That is a business decision because we make business decisions. They're intertwined. And so it's shifting that mindset and it's how you create the relationships that you can create with these kinds of clients. We have clients that have been with us for the entire 16-year span of Silicon Legal, clients who are on company number five with us. We really build these long-term relationships and it's a function of taking that approach and like also building into the framework of the organization. So it's not just like, hey, Andre knows that. Oh, I got delegated down to so-and-so. They suck. It's no, there's a consistent feel top to bottom at our firm because of the training and the emphasis orientation evaluation on client service. Client service is everything in our space. So let's get into that. Let's get into the framework of your organization. Let's get into the mechanics of how you're able to serve all of these clients in such a high quality way. Your firm website says always recruiting. Talk to me about the importance of that. 
Okay, I want to preface this by saying that everything is not a meme to me. <laughs> but we got another meme coming. <laughs> got another one. Got another one. <laughs> the tagline was initially always be recruiting, like a play on the famous line, always be closing from the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And people were like, why are you saying that? It sounds strange. And so we removed the B to just always recruiting. But the idea remains the same. It's this notion that talent is so very important to the success of our firm. We really believe that investing in our people and taking care of our team, protecting and empowering them is the secret of success. That actually our team is more important than our clients. When you can find those who we believe that will thrive on our platform, it's special. It's actually more difficult, I'd say, to find great talent than it is to find great clients. For better, for worse, business development is something that has come fairly easy to myself and my partners. But finding great talent is always challenging. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of intention, process. We have a crazy complex interviewing and screening process. And when we're focused on that talent, we find that great talent. We're willing to take a little bit of economic risk and even slightly overhire. If we come across people who we think are poised to truly leverage Silicon Legal and succeed. Talent recruitment is very difficult also because you have to really know yourself and what you need and what's a good fit for you. You mentioned a complex process. I don't expect you to go into every detail, but can you give us an overview of what that recruitment process looks like? Yeah. You know, there are a couple initial screens that take place. And if you make it past those, then you're taking literally a test a skills test that someone has to turn around to us. They can ask for it whenever they want, but they got to turn it back to us in 24 hours. If you make it past that skills test, then you come in and you interview with seven people. And there are pre-interview homework pieces around email structuring and writing, around response to comforting a client through a shaky situation, and also around project management. It's really less for us about necessarily testing those skills, that's a part of it, but it's also putting our cards on the table about who we are. It's a very common thing you'll see here at Silicon Legal where a senior attorney asks the junior attorney, can you please mark up the document and prepare a cover letter email for client XYZ with the intention of you, junior attorney, are going to be the one that sends this email out. That can rub some people the wrong way. There are people who are like, I'm a grown ass adult. I know how to write emails. To us, the markup of the document is easy. That's easy to do. The email cover and how that can empower action and move the deal forward is mission critical. And that's where the art is. And so things like, yeah, let's talk about the content of your email. Let's talk not about necessarily the legal merits of the scary letter that the client received that you're trying to comfort them through, but let's talk about like mechanically, how are you going to provide that comfort and reassurance that we're on top of it? For the project management, if you're in a startup practice, you could be working with 10 to 15 clients a day. The juggle is real. Plus, a lot of the clients are green. They don't know how important something is. So it's like, you not only need to juggle stuff, you have to also manage their expectations. And someone's asking for something that's not due for two months. I'm not going to drop everything and do it today. And so learning how to manage that, we also consider that a team sport and another art form at SLS. And so it's really about making sure people have those basic skills, like in the test, but also making sure that this is going to be a platform. You know, our, our attorneys and paralegals bill fewer hours. But if you're coming to Silicon Legal 
purely to downshift, you're not going to thrive here because we're still super intense. We're still working really hard and playing at a high level. And so it's really trying to find someone who's like, I love this practice. I really get a charge from working with these kinds of clients and the client service angle, trusted professional advisor angle is something that I want to develop in my career. I want to develop that in my life. And this is the space to do it. When you can find people when, when you do that, you know, it's just going to be a, they're just going to, it's going to be a rocket ship for them. It's awesome. It's exciting. It's interesting to me, these tests and the skills specifically that you're focusing on this client comforting. It's so good because at the end of the day, you have to instill confidence with your client. It is a relationship. It is a two-sided relationship. And to have that be such at the forefront of your interview process is so key. I also love the project management. It's not something they teach you in law school, or at least it didn't when I was in law school. But being organized, understanding the flow of how a case goes and how to stay organized through every step of the process facilitates better communication between the attorney and the client. And therefore, the client has a better sense of what's going on. And I think that, again, it goes to client comfort. It feeds into that same concept. And on the internal teams, same thing. Yeah, There'll be something that we do here that people can't get their arms around is if an associate is like crazy busy, they are encouraged to like tap out and be like, hey, partners, here are the 19 things on my plate right now. Here is how I am thinking about prioritizing them. What do you think? In a typical law firm, it's like, I don't want to hear what you got going on. Work on my thing. Here we're like, right. no, 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 no. This information flows in multi-channels. It's like the partner may know, listen, you thought that getting this agreement was like mission critical. I'm just coming from the board meeting. It's been totally deprioritized. Push that out to next week. Or you know what? I can jump in on that one because I was actually talking to so-and-so. I can help out here. It really is a team sport. And doing it well results in ultra-responsive, super-fast delivery of services. We're better coordinated, and the client feels more reassured. It's funny. Through my interviews, I've heard in various ways that one of the largest things that needs to be fixed in the practice of law is not putting lawyers in a silo Oh yeah, and saying, you have to do everything, and you have to figure it all out, like you said. It seems as though you're solving for that by creating really, truly this team effort that also is seemingly a culture of openness. You invite associates to have those frank conversations and they feel comfortable doing so. Like you said, the juggle is real Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that we're managing that in a way that provides the support that's needed, not just internally, but also to the client. So the client doesn't suffer because of the job. Exactly. At the end of the day, we need to make sure that we're pushing their business forward. And so much of it, like I was saying, we're not in a rocket science practice here. So much of what we're doing is is facilitating deal-making, facilitating transactions. We need to keep that train moving forward. We need to be as efficient, if not more efficient than our clients to make sure that we're not the bottleneck. We never want to be the bottleneck. Yeah, We'd rather be waiting on them than have them waiting on us. Yeah. So I want to hone in a little bit more around that. Your firm says that it focuses on providing internally your attorneys and paralegals with kind of seven pillars of benefits, right? Providing an environment in which attorneys can thrive. So I saw it's access to deal flow, general counsel benefits, having a life, competitive compensation plus benefits, working alongside top colleagues, a clear partner track, and building with purpose. Obviously, people can go to your website so they can see that 
in more detail, but can you speak to how and why these pillars were created in the first place? Yeah, great question. It's very intentional. We view these sort of seven pillars, seven factors as, for better or for worse, that the basic needs of a lawyer in their career. And being able to fulfill these basic needs is something that we think makes Silicon Legal very attractive, a really good place to practice. So first and foremost, yeah, the deal flow. You got to be doing transactions at a high level. Our people are coming from big law, doing exciting deals, and Silicon Legal can't be viewed as the place to downshift, a place where you lose that competitive edge. So you want to be doing deals with tier one VCs, be across the table from the major big law players in order to feel vital, like you're utilizing your talents. The general counsel thing, that's really about developing a very broad, marketable practice. We don't want people to feel pigeonholed in just financings or M&A. Like all of our attorneys here do financings, M&A, and tech trans. And it helps us to really understand the client as a whole, to build a broader and deeper relationship, to be that first line of defense for all legal affairs. And it, it again, leads to better relationship building on an individual associate level. Having a life, no brainer. Burnout is a horrible problem in our industry. We think it is possible. We've made it possible to, to operate a firm where you can play at the highest level, but still have a rich life outside of work. Compensation and perks, that's universal. You have to feel like you're valued appropriately. The working with top flight colleagues, something I think where you want to feel like you're in good company. We always point out to potential candidates and we literally like blast every new hire in a press release to make it clear to the market, you are not the first person to leave big law uh, to make this leap. Well-credentialed, top flight, experienced attorneys, paralegals, and staff also work here. And then on the career options, I would actually shift it, not just necessarily partner track, but like career options is we talk about the fact that you know, we don't hire lateral partners here. We never have. We don't intend to. All of our partners are homegrown, but it, it's recognizing the reality that partnership is not for everyone. You know, my father worked for General Motors for 35 years. That does not occur anymore. We all have our own career journey. And while we can't promise that you're going to become a partner here, you will without doubt become a better professional very quickly, create a reputation for yourself as a trusted advisor very quickly and be set up for success, either to stay here long-term or to land an incredibly rewarding job elsewhere. And, and then the last thing, the building something that matters. And that's one that I would say is incredibly unique to us and is missing from like 99% of firms out there. D down to the person, I'd say everyone at SLS is really concerned about like finding a sense of meaning in their work, not just making money, not just doing deals, but feeling that you're a part of something. We do things differently. We're building our own different kind of firm. People are excited about that. They're excited to feel like a true stakeholder with a voice, a change agent in the organization. They're just part of something bigger, part of a law firm that's broken the mold. And so that's that final piece of like, do I feel like what I've done matters, if you will. So I'm going to work my way backwards from that to all of these different pillars, because there's lots to say here. First, I love this idea of being a change agent within the firm. What are some of the ways in which you facilitate that? A lot of opportunity for feedback. We really encourage our team, really from the start, like when you're just hired, we have a, a very well-developed onboarding process called the first 100 days that really takes you through the ins and outs of the firm. We ask you week one and week five to provide surveys in the onboarding process, how it's going, 
many of our onboarding enhancements have been a function of those week one and week five feedback loops. We do quarterly AMAs for our team to just hit us with questions, anything. It's sort of a no holds barred, everything from funny personal questions to like state of the firm or tough questions. Our legal ops department has one-on-ones with everybody on a quarterly basis just to get a sense of like how they're progressing, what matters to them. And then down to like survey monkey and physical suggestion boxes. So really try to elicit feedback. And what we've tried to do also is kind of close the loop on that feedback. So we've held these sessions before where we catalog all the prior feedback and tell you like, yes, we did this. No, we didn't do this and why. So that our team can be oriented toward a a better framework for organizational improvement. It inevitably works to shift the way that people think about resolving issues. There's issues every day. It's a 52-person organization. I mean, oh my God. But to have that engagement, that's the fun part. And people feel like they have a voice, which makes them more engaged. And again, makes them feel like they're a part of something. And we're all building some small piece here and there to make it a better place to be. So important and great examples. Thank you for that. I want to move on to the clear partner track. One of the things that I think is so fascinating is that you said, no, it's actually just not clear partner track. It's various different tracks for your career. And one of the things that I think is inherently a problem in big law is that it's only a partner track, right? Like if you don't make partner, then most people are kind of waiting to either be told, okay, you have to move on or, you know, here's like the very limited way in which you can continue working with us. I like that you've opened up the possibility that even if partner track is not for you, we have other ways in which we can continue to work together. I'll go even a step further. Your track could be also mean not being a Silicon Legal for a long time. It could mean mm-hmm. going in-house somewhere, going to a venture fund or whatever. It was that realization to me that like the workforce is changing. I mean, it has changed. And we have to orient the way that we view an employee life cycle at a company in much less stark terms. If someone comes to Silicon Legal and they stay here for three, four years and they positively impact our culture, they learn a lot. They become a better client service professional. They build relationships and they land in an awesome place. That's a win. And I'm not even talking about, oh, it's a win because they'll give us business as a client. No, no, just that in and of itself is a win. And I think that you've got to view it that way. What happens is like partners get kind of frustrated and jaded and just pissed off. I don't want to put any effort because I know they're going to leave in a few years and yada, yada. And that just, to me, again, just not inspiring. People are not excited about that. And you've got to give them a sense that you're invested in your career. Like one of the things we have twice a year reviews. And part of that is called the partner homework. Because there's things that we need to make sure we're doing. Like, oh, you know, so-and-so would have, they need to get more reps on commercial contracts. It would be good to be sending them to more board meetings to sort of be able to put them on the spot and have them thinking on their feet a little bit more. It's a process of like, every person has this growth trajectory. How do we help them? How do we do our part to meet them where they're at? And then how do we check in on expectations too? We try to be as transparent of like, no, it's probably not a promotion this cycle, but looking pretty good for a year from now or whatever it is. It's not easy, but we try to be as transparent as we can. And I think it just, again, it creates a situation where we want all parties to feel good about that development. And again, it may land you here for a long time. That's awesome. But it may mean, you know what? I really wanted to go and do this. And 
we're going to make sure that we put you in a 10x better position to go and kick ass in whatever that new endeavor was. I think that in general, saying I will only invest in someone if I know they'll stay here for as long as possible creates a culture in which people are not going to feel like they're being invested in. It's very short-sighted to say to yourself, I'm not going to invest in this person unless I have this full-fledged commitment yeah, forever yeah. that they're going to stay with us. Sign a blood oath. A blood oath. Right. Yeah. Part of your onboarding process is you must <laughs> sign a blood oath. <laughs> Amazing. The rest of the pillars are pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to get into all of them, but I appreciate the examples there. I want to get into some of our rapid-fire questions before we end. Sure. So the first question is, what does leadership in law mean to you? Yeah, definitely a great question. It really comes down to this concept of stewardship, both client-facing and you know, much more importantly with regard to the internal management of our firm. And because I've repeated this so many times, it's like I've memorized that stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. And I would say it's at the heart of what it is that we do and how we operate. Like any law firm, our clients have trusted us to help guide them through their endeavors. And I think specific to like a venture startup practice, not just to dot the I's and cross the T's, but to think strategically and practically and empower them to move their businesses forward. But even more important than that, our team members have entrusted the firm to bring them opportunities for personal and professional development, to bring financial stability to them and their families, to listen, to support to bring a sense of empowerment and belonging. And it's that focus on a sense of kind of internal, genuine care and concern for one another and cultivating a culture of individual sense of stewardship that I think brings it all full circle. That internal stewardship is the linchpin that makes it all possible, that makes the client stewardship possible. And if, if we invest in one another, we can consistently deliver excellence. And to me... Real leadership in the law is about fostering that sense of stewardship, that internal drive to support those around you, because together we can do some amazing things. And I think as leaders, we really have to work hard to get that ingrained into the culture, both through words and deeds. So what I hear you saying is that leadership in law is both client and employee stewardship. Yeah. And I'd say the employee stewardship enables the highest level of client stewardship and an enhanced level of client stewardship. I really like that concept a lot. It's great. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Oh, uh, that totally harkens back to what we were talking about before about the cowboy stuff. There is this view that like, yeah, these guys, they're, they're not sophisticated. They're just like reviewing contracts quickly and telling clients to sign and trying to get deals done. And they're just not serious. I think that's a particular view of venture capital and startup lawyers that a lot of other lawyers have. But like I said, I think that what we do is far more rewarding and practical and personal and just a lot more inspiring. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? Uh, advance into the 21st century on the topics of team member engagement and professional development. I would say this is, remains an incredibly selfish industry. Very few law firm partners are genuinely interested in mentoring and supporting talent. They're interested in their own book of business, preserving that, migrating from one firm to another very often, and often without bringing associates with them. Like to me, that's just mind blowing that you would leave 
your firm and that you haven't developed at least a small group of soldiers around you who believe in you and want to support you and be on a team with you and that you couldn't convince them to come. And that just makes no sense to me. And that's just so selfish. And even more so when I see it, like again, in startup and, and venture capital law, that's not that complex. I've done thousands of financings. Like at a certain point, after you've done like 500, it doesn't matter anymore. So there's not some special guru knowledge. But what's funny is that this is, I think, very unique to our industry. I see it play out whenever I put a LinkedIn post up about some of the culture or employee support things that we really strive for. I get these like really effusive responses. I am not that smart. The concepts that I spew on social media have been developing in corporate America for decades. But in the legal realm, when I discuss these concepts with lawyers and partners at other firms, it's as if I've invented the light bulb. <laughs> like, come on, this is common sense stuff. And then also I'll take it the other level too. I always say this is, I don't know what a lot of law firm partners are really trying to do with their careers and their lives. If you're not focusing on the people, are you focusing on the money? What are you trying to do? And so like, I want to have a legacy. I want our partners and our firm and those who've worked and been inspired and trained by us to leave a legacy, particularly with respect to developing those around you, to being a mentor. It's huge to me. It is my purpose. It's my life's work is around, if you were to ask me the things I'm most proud of, it's those who I've helped to mentor and coach who've gotten better and both you know, thrived at Silicon Legal and also went out and done you know, amazing things elsewhere. Where do you think all of this comes from, this desire, this drive to develop others and to leave that kind of legacy? You know, I mean, when you're able to impart knowledge and perspective to someone and they believe in it, you feel good. And when you can watch it working and watch it spread, when you see that machine running, it's so satisfying and like validating. And so part of it is just, I've had a lot of these ideas about how you run a law firm, how it can work. And We have a lot of processes and systems, of course, but the real secret is always the people because the processes break down. But when the people want to support those processes and can sustain those processes, like there's so much you can create. It's pretty crazy. Sustainability is a key part of this as well, right? If you're creating an environment that's sustainable, then those people will want and believe in trying to support Mm -hmm. those processes. So if there was a piece of practical advice that you could give to our listeners, these are leaders and future leaders in law. What would you give them? Uh, Doing this requires so much resilience. The emotional swings can be just dramatic. And the ups and downs have the ability to hijack your emotions, if you will. I would say that the best advice that I could give anyone who is a leader or aspires to be one is really make it not just a nice to have, but actually a necessary part of your self-management to put those ups and downs into perspective and realize that that which you think is the worst thing to happen to you probably is not. That which you think is the best thing to happen to you probably is not. It's a long game. Learn, lead with gratitude and view setbacks as an opportunity to get some feedback and get better next time. But it's just really managing those. And a lot of the work that I've been doing like over the last 18 months or so has been trying to get better at that, trying to manage my emotions better, trying to not take everything so personally. 
I like that a lot. It is so easy to get caught up in the moment, be like, this is amazing, or this is so hard, or this is so tough. And just reminding ourselves that if we're lucky, life is long. (laughs) And there's lots of things that will come our way. There's lots of phases and seasons. Mm -hmm. And this is just but one moment of that and keeping that all in perspective. Oh, you have to. It'll it'll, it'll wear on you. you Yeah, it really will. Well, I know we talked about this a little bit at the beginning with your gratitude, so it may be the same thing or may not. What do you do for self-care? Yeah, if it's not obvious by the way I drone on about this kind of stuff, I'm a bit of a self-care junkie looking to try and find as many ways to recharge, preserve energy, improve my perspective, remove triggering things. Even if like meditation is not your cup of tea, the one thing I have done that's been a part of that morning routine is that... I never, ever, ever start my day anymore by picking up my phone and looking at email. I get up, I go downstairs, say hi to my wife and son, make a cup of coffee, come upstairs, meditate 10 to 15 minutes, and then I look at email. And it's, again, starts the day with that level of intentionality and calm and focus. It's really changed just the way that I start a day. Because inevitably, even if you stay up late, You're going to wake up, you're going to have 30, 50, 60 emails sitting in your inbox, and one or two of them is going to convey some sense of disappointment or urgency. And that's just not the first thing you need first thing in the morning. I don't like to like totally impose my views on anyone. I'm telling like in my heart, objectively, I think every human on the planet would benefit just from doing that. (laughs) Just just that. There is something really important about being, like you said, intentional about what you do when you first wake up and not it being automatic. I think one of the problems is that people check their emails automatically without even thinking about it. So I think that intention about what you're doing first thing in the morning is really important. But also, instead of being from a fear-based perspective of like, oh, well, what will happen if I don't check my email right away? Coming in with pride that you've prioritized yourself Mm -hmm. first. I think is such an important way to kind of also apply what you've talked about. But I've been doing that too for probably a few months now, and it's really changed my days. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, I want to thank you so much, Andre, for this conversation. If anyone wanted to reach out and connect with you, what is the best way that they could do that? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. You can message me. Check out our website. A lot of times people that are launching solo practices or small shops reach out and ask for perspectives. I'm an open book. Celebrity chefs sell their cookbooks. There's nothing proprietary or secret to what it is that I do. I enjoy sharing. So yeah, reach out. I love it. Thank you so much, Andre. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. I had an awesome time. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.